Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green. I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding, and we are now in the fourth Sunday of Lent, which means that next week will be uh, Palm Sunday, and the following week will be Easter. Seems strange, very, very strange this year, because churches have not been able to meet collectively, and so Lent has taken on a different sort of cast and character. And then next week, Palm Sunday is going to feel really strange. And if we still can't meet for Easter, then stranger still. There may be parts of the country that can't meet for Easter, and so we need to remember what we're headed towards. Lent this year, I think, has a particularly odd feeling because we've all been forced to give up things, things we didn't consider giving up when we were on Ash Wednesday. We had no earthly idea how much life would change. We didn't know that we'd be giving up a lot of freedom of movement in order to prevent the spread of the coronavirus. We didn't know we'd be giving up um, toilet paper, <clears throat> uh, or at least having sufficient amounts to calm your fears unless you went out and hoarded it in advance. It's an odd, odd time is what I'm trying to get at. I mean, I sit as I work every day, I sit in my office and I look out the window and I see so much less activity going past my window. It's unbelievable. I, we took a drive yesterday and did some things and what we found was is that there were a lot of people not doing anything or going anywhere. Stores are closed. It's, it's just very strange. There's no way around it. And there's a penitential season to this. And I believe that, that um, the vice president made a, an allusion the other day <clears throat> to the churches praying and that God would heal our land, which is an allusion to uh, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And I think we do need to be in mourning for our land. We need to be in mourning for what we've become and how far we've strayed from him. I think it's important to do that. It, that is, this is a time when I think we've, we've, as a country, been given at least an opportunity. I don't know if we've taken advantage of it or not, but, but we had an opportunity at least to reflect and ask the question, who are we? And are we moving on a path towards who we want to be, or are we moving in, in a different direction? The priorities of, of the media, for instance, have changed. I, I see very little discussion of things that so preoccupy the media just until very recently, but, but what people are realizing is, is the difference between primary things and second or tertiary things even. And so we've got to focus again as a nation on who we are. And we are a nation of, I think, compassion. We're, we're a nation that um, wants to be that shining city on the hill. And I, and I think we're in a national conversation about what shape that needs to be. And I, I think Christian voices need to be heard in this, and I've seen criticism of evangelical Christians in, in different places um, and blaming them for some of this, and get used to it is all I can tell you. Um, I want to kind of use that to move into uh, what we're going to talk about today in this fourth Sunday of Lent, just so you'll know the lessons are Psalm 130. It's the first 14 verses of Ezekiel 37. Romans 6, 6 to 13, and most all of um, John 11, which is the resurrection of Lazarus. The Ezekiel passage is about dry bones. And Paul in Romans is talking about there, are you slaves to sin or are you slaves to righteousness? And then summarizes it all with 
the statement of the wages of sin is death. <clears throat> so death <laughs> is sort of the, the main theme for today in the lectionary. And so what I want to do is kind of begin by talking about the uh, Ezekiel passage a little bit and sort of what's the hope there because there's not hope in that situation. The first person to know there's no hope there is Ezekiel because God asks him the question, son of man, can these bones live? Well, what Ezekiel had already told us was is that God picked him up and set him down in the spirit in the middle of the valley and the valley was full of bones and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. So he's telling us that there's this enormous cache of dry, very dry bones. Now, about, I don't remember, maybe 20 years ago, yeah, 20 years ago now, a little more than that, Suzanne and I went to Rwanda in 1999. And... It was five years after the genocide in 1994 when 800,000-plus people were murdered because they were in the wrong tribe. Now, that's not a particularly uh, African problem. Remember the Holocaust. Remember uh, many, the Armenian genocide. So there's, it's, it's, there's no racial component to this. Um, it, it's more common, in fact, in some ways among um, Eastern Europe, or not Eastern Europeans, but Europeans. Um, if you look at the history of the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, you'll see constant wars, people killing one another, uh, people killing one another for religious reasons, for other reasons. It's just... So when we went to Rwanda, what we saw, they, they took us out from the city Kigali, which is the capital, and it was it was strange times there too. I mean, strange in ways that we we can't even imagine here, frankly. And they would take us out from the city, and we would see two things. First, we would see um, gangs of men. I mean, like large gangs in pink, uh, what looked like pajamas, short pajamas, uh, being led by other men with guns. And these were prisoners. These were the people who had been accused of committing the genocide. So we would see them, and then we, they would take us to a place where genocide had occurred. And I remember one small church where we went, and it was, it was full of bones. And it was five years later, and so they were dry bones. They were on the altar table. There were three skulls. Hard to tell this. The question <clears throat> that hung pregnant was, where's God? And in those three skulls on the altar, what I saw was he's right there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I was just overwhelmed <clears throat> by what we were seeing. And then they showed us trees that bore the marks where people were thrown against the trees and hacked to death. You could see the marks the machetes made. Next to that, they wanted to take us down into a bunker. And in the bunker that had been dug there, there were shelves lining the walls and 
bones. Just what looked like endless amounts of bones were stored on those shelves. These are the skulls. These are the, the legs. These are the arms. The, you know, it's awful. It was a terrible, terrible thing to see. So I know what it looks like to see dry bones. Very many of them very, very dry. So when Ezekiel sees this image, it's, it's an image of utter hopelessness. And so when God asks, Son of Man, can these bones live? That there's only one answer, and, and it's the answer of hope. And that is, oh Lord God, you know. And what he's saying essentially is, I don't see any hope for that. But it, I believe it's within your power to make those bones live. And, and then God says to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to the mo dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I'm the Lord. And then Ezekiel prophesied as the Lord told him to. And he said, then there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And then I looked and behold, there were sinews on them, the muscles and the, the um fascia and everything else and then flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them but there was no breath in them so there's this progressive movement towards life and so it, it had to be a remarkable sight to see these bones become flesh and blood but there was no breath in them they were lying there. So they were partway back to life. They were as they would have been before they became just bones. And then God said to him, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. And I don't want to get into a discussion here about whether this is something Ezekiel's seeing in the spirit or if he's seeing it in reality. We know this, that if he's seeing it in reality, they died. And they passed through to this sort of place again where they're very dry bones, been a couple thousand plus years. <clears throat> And so they're standing there. This army is arrayed. And the Lord says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost and we are clean cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And again, don't know whether he's, he's seeing literally 
this scene unfold before him or whether he is seeing this in the spirit. He says he's taken there in the spirit in the same way that John tells us that he's taken in the spirit on the Lord's day. So the issue isn't really about that at some level, though, because who he's speaking to is not just these people, but it is these people. It's the ancestors. It's those who have gone before. But it's also a word that, that Ezekiel is supposed to give then back to the people who live at this time. It's the promise and the hope that he's giving those people who are in exile in Babylon. Now, Ezekiel is known as the sort of the father of the synagogue movement. You can have it only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem. So when they were in exile in Babylon, Ezekiel didn't want the people to lose track of who they are and who they belong to. That they were in covenant, perpetual, everlasting covenant with God, who had redeemed them from the land of Egypt when their hope had been cut off. So here they say we are dried up, our hope is dried up. <clears throat> we don't have any hope left, and we are clean cut off. Those are intensifiers. Every one of those is more intense in the, the plight of the people and the explanation of how bad the situation is than that which comes before it. And so the people of Israel are in Babylon, and, and before they went, remember, Jeremiah had a word for them, and, and that was, don't think this is going to last a couple of weeks. Settle in, build houses, marry, and, and be married. This is going to take a long time for every year that you wouldn't allow the land to have its Sabbaths, which would have been about 70 years, according to Jeremiah's reckoning. So what he's saying is, is get, get used to life there. Build a life. Become part of that place. And Ezekiel's giving them the hope that, yes, I understand that generations now have expired and died over yonder in Babylon. But the Lord's giving hope here. He's calling them to hopefulness, calling them to life from death. Whether they're physically dead or whether they're spiritually dead because they've cut off without hope. If you've ever been in that position, you can know the power of God providing any glimmer of hope and a promise of better days. And so here, that's what he does. He, he speaks through this vision whether real or in the spirit, to the people of Israel. Because if he can do that, then he can do anything. And it's an army that he's gathered. They don't have any weapons. That's not what it says. What are their weapons? Well, Paul tells us that. In Ephesians, he tells us what the, the weapons of the army of God are to be, and they don't look like other weapons. So here he's given this incredible hope when all hope is lost. And I think we need to hear that hope. We need to hear that hope right now. And we've only been in this thing about two weeks. We, we need to hear 
God calling us, not to the hope of life as it was before that, but to a better life than that, to a greater life than that, because he's calling us to be greater people. He's calling us to deny self. He's calling us to be dedicated and fixed on one thing, and that is the proclamation of his son. So Ezekiel, as the head of the synagogue movement, the way that he brought that into being, it was centered around one thing. It wasn't centered around sacrifice. You can't do sacrifice unless you have a temple. It was centered around the teaching of Torah. That's where you get rabbis. That's where you get the scribes, is you get those who are devoted to the word of God. And so as uh, Ezekiel devoted himself to teaching men who would teach in synagogues all around the land where they were dispersed during that time because the previous fall of the northern kingdom, they're called now the Ten Lost Tribes because they didn't maintain the integrity of who they are and what they believed. They gave up on God because their hope was lost and they were clean cut off and that caused them to walk away from all hope and to blend in with the nations religiously and otherwise. And Ezekiel bears a burden that he won't allow that to happen for God's people as they're in exile in Babylon. And he knows the only way that that's going to happen is if, if he raises up people who will faithfully teach the word of God where they are to the people who live in their districts. And so that's what synagogues are for today. So sacrifice happens at synagogues. This is completely about the teaching of the word of God, some more faithfully than others, just like in Christianity. So the other encouragement in this story is for Ezekiel himself. And the reason I say that is because think about exactly how God did all three of these things. He was very clear with the dry bones. <clears throat> and that was to say, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And so it's important for us as Christians that we hear the word of the Lord, that we hear it for ourselves. In other words, that we read it and that we, we attend while we're reading. We read prayerfully because we want to know not just what does it say, but what does it mean? And so Ezekiel has to receive great hope from what happens here because the resurrection comes about by the proclamation of the word of God. And that is the one thing that Ezekiel has attended himself to more than anything else. And so now let's move forward. Let's move forward to that John 11 story. And it's the story of Lazarus. And so that begins with a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. We've already met Mary and Martha. This is the first time we've met Lazarus. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped her feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters said to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God, so that the glory... the the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you remember from last week, that's roughly the same thing Jesus said about the man who was born blind when they asked him who sinned or this, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus gave almost exactly the same kind of answer. This happened for a different reason. It's not connected with any of that. 
it happens that God might be glorified today. But it's odd because then it goes from there to saying, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I'm sorry. If I sent a, a note to somebody who could do something in that situation, and, and I was and I pointed out specifically in the note, he whom you love is ill. Obviously, what I'm trying to say is you might want to hurry because it's somebody you love. And then it, we're told right after that. So because Jesus loved him, he didn't go. He stayed two more days where he was. That, that doesn't fit. That's not the way it works. And they knew it. Mary and Martha knew it. We'll find that out later in the story. They knew good and well, this is not how it works. And the way we find out is, is that they both say to him the same thing. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. The unspoken part of it was, if you had come when we sent for you, we wouldn't be mourning at our brother's grave today. But after a couple of days, Jesus says, let's go. Nobody wanted to go. The response was, um, the last time we were there, they were going to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus said, yes, we're going to go. And, and they reminded him, what you said, he wasn't going to die. He said, well, he's just falling asleep. But I go to awaken him. And the disciples said, Lord, if, if he's just asleep, he's going to recover. So Jesus saw that they thought he was talking metaphorically. And he says, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And so Thomas, called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Their full expectation in going back to Jerusalem was that everybody was going to die because the, the Pharisees were bent on him. They wanted to kill him. And they believed they would die with him. So then they went and they got there. And the first words that they greet him with are those that I just gave you. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Great faith in that. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe you're the Christ, the Son of God who's coming into the world. Powerful statement that Jesus makes. And then she believes some of those things too. What she doesn't affirm, however, is that she believes in the immediate resurrection of her brother. Everybody in this scene seems to believe in resurrection. They believe that when Messiah comes, there will be resurrection of the dead. And so she believes certain things about Jesus. She's not quite sure exactly what it means that she believes these things. But what she knows is this. You know what? I remember the last time we were together and I got chastised. When I asked Jesus to tell Mary to help me, he chastised me 
over that request and said, she's chosen the better part. You're too busy to actually have the good things of listening to the word of the Lord and teaching and being with me. And so she apparently heard Jesus's response and said, well, maybe if I go get Mary, because <laughs> he seemed to like her better than me, and maybe things will go. So she says, the teacher is here and calling for you. Did you hear that? Because I didn't hear Jesus say, where's Mary and what's she doing? So she goes too. And then some of the women who were there, the professional mourners, went with her to go see Jesus. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I mean, they're professing great faith that Jesus could have prevented this death, but, but death is final. And then he says, well, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible. What was he weeping for? We know what he's going to do because we know he did it. <clears throat> but what's he weeping for? Why is he weeping here? He's weeping, I believe, over death and the effect that it has on us and what we feel, the finality of death. It's not wrong to weep and to grieve. It is, however, wrong to weep and grieve without hope of the resurrection. When I do a funeral, <clears throat> one of the horrible things that I have to do at funerals is I have to throw dirt on the casket in front of the family. And there's a finality to that. But as I do it, I say this, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. We commend to Almighty God our brother and we commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. The Lord bless him and keep him. The Lord make his face shine upon him and be gracious unto him. The Lord lift up his countenance upon him and give him peace. Amen. We commit the body to the ground, but we commit the soul and the person to the Lord because we're asking him to bless him. We're praying the Aaronic blessing, the blessing Aaron was given as the high priest over the people. We're praying that over a dead person because we don't believe he is dead. We believe he's fallen asleep or she's fallen asleep, whichever the case may be. And so that's what's going on here is, is that they believe in the resurrection. They're not certain of the resurrection. And there's a reason not to be certain of it. They've never seen it, never known anybody who had. It's not the same. Somebody who is fully dead. <clears throat> they took Jesus to the cave, the tomb where Lazarus was buried. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odor, for he's been dead four days. In the King James, it says, he stinketh. And what they're saying is, there's no hope. I mean, it, the, the belief in Judaism was the soul hovered around the body for three days afterwards to see if the body would revivify, would come back to life. But after three days, it abandoned it. And so there was no hope of actual life again, even for the soul. And so the people knew that. And they're acting and speaking on that theology. What they're saying is the decay of the body has already set in. He'll stink now. If you'd been here a day or two ago, it would have been okay to go in there and visit. And we know that it would have been because some of these same people went to the tomb of Jesus the day after in order to anoint him for burial. So we know some things. And here what we know is nobody believes it's possible for Lazarus to come back from life because decay is set in because the soul has departed the body. Even the soul's given up, and now they've given up. They have no hope at all. 
here. And so Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me for I know you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face unwrapped, it wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. There was probably a part of those people that wanted to rush and do that. There was a larger part that was scared to death. It seemed like the dumbest thing in the world. Probably felt even to those standing around at that point, even those who had seen Jesus do incredible miracles, that the, the height of folly for him to cry out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Did anybody there besides Jesus have that kind of faith? Well, he did. He came forth. We know later that they wanted to kill Lazarus too. After the resurrection of Jesus, they wanted to kill him because of the testimony Lazarus had. But that's short-sighted because Lazarus wasn't the only one who knew what had happened that day. But he was the only one who could testify to having died and been brought back to life by Jesus, the Word of God. So I don't know where you are today. I don't know whether you've got no hope, whether you feel clean cut off, whether you feel like there is no future in your life, there's no nothing in your life, whether you're despondent over the situation in the world, whether you're despondent over your own personal situation, or whether you're despondent on behalf of somebody else who means a lot to you that you prayed for and prayed for, and God hasn't come through and hasn't brought that person into life yet. The lessons for today, the lessons of the gospel, or don't you ever give up hope. It's easy to do. It's hard to continue to hope. But I'm here to tell you today, there's always a reason to hope. So long as you know him. There's always a reason to hope, no matter how lost the situation seems. Ezekiel can testify to that. Mary and Martha can testify to that. All the disciples could testify to that. And Lazarus could testify to that. You're never beyond hope. There's always a possibility for God to do something no matter how dry the bones, no matter how far cut off. There's always hope. There's always the possibility of a miracle. So hang in there. Keep praying, keep believing, and always keep hoping. You've been listening to Faith Seeking Understanding again. I'm the host of Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green. You can find us on Facebook. If you look for Faith Seeking Understanding, you can find us there. Look forward to hearing from you. Take care.